Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hey, while some people and businesses are branching out during this time, you're seeing it on social media, athletes doing the Ben Roethlisberger getting a haircut, all kinds of weird stuff. Well, there are places that are doing what they've always done, like our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Throughout all this, their mission has remained the same. They're still helping people find jobs and helping growing companies hire for their teams by bringing together candidates who need employment and employers looking for great candidates. ZipRecruiter committed to helping our workforce stay strong. Let's work together. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. We're also brought to you by Boom Bust, the rise and fall of HQ Trivia, our new narrative podcast series. There's a couple episodes already up. It's the latest offering from us. You might be listening to The Wire way down in the hole. Uh, you might be listening to Flying Coach with Pete Carroll and Steve Kerr. I sure hope you are because this was the best episode ever this week. Bill Murray. I can't even get Bill Murray on my podcast. The coaches, they get a podcast within five episodes. Bill Murray's coming on. I'm jealous. I'm envious. I, I feel spiteful. I can't believe it. And guess what? You're not going to believe this, but Bill Murray was awesome. I don't even know if he's even been on a podcast before, but... That's happening too, so you can check that out. Coming up on this podcast, going to talk for like two minutes about the NBA at the top, and then we're going to do um, the biggest lies of the MJ documentary with Jason Concepcion and Joe House. And then finally, uh, people have wanted this for a while, the All the Smoke guys, Matt Barr and Steven Jackson. Uh, I've had Steven Jackson on with stuff before, but never with Matt Barnes and never on this podcast. It's awesome. I love these guys. I, I I promise you, you will enjoy this podcast or your money back. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, the last dance is in the books. One last thing to discuss. Joe House is here. Jason Concepcion is here. Yes. Jason went through the uh, 10 episodes, noticed a recurring theme that MJ might not have been totally honest about some of these things. House, I don't, but, I don't know if you were taking everything MJ was saying at face value. I wasn't. I don't know about I was you. Not were you a, believing I, everything? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I was so, not. And I loved the... Let me just say that I love the documentary. I will spend... As many hours as they will give us with MJ as he lies to my face. I loved it. See, I don't I don't think of them as lies. I just think of MJ operating in the fourth dimension. He's so ahead of his time. His, the, his, the, the time-space continuum and his mental acuity in terms of running his world uh, in adjacent to our world, that's the way that I prefer to think about right. the world that MJ occupied. Right, it's like Steve Jobs. It's like what they said about Steve Jobs. He he bends reality to his reality. His reality yes. is his reality. Well, the question is, is it a lie if you believe what you're saying is true? Probably not. Well, I don't know. You, we should ask the president of the United States. <laughs> uh, so Jason took kept track of the biggest lies that he felt like just. We're hard to accept from MJ's side. He's going to count them down and we're going to react. Do you want to go? Sure, How I'll many just do go, you have? I have, I have about six. 
Let's call Do you want to go six to one or one to six? Let's go six to one. Okay. Uh, number six. Uh, I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competition problem. So, yeah. Now, I put this at six because while I think he clearly is a fiend for action, Michael Jordan, if he saw two ants crawling across the floor, would immediately look for <laughs> anyone to take his action on which ant would win. Right. It, like, is a fiend for it. That said, you know, he's got enough money where... I, you could argue that it actually is not a problem. That said, the the interview of him with the sunglasses on denying that he had a gambling problem is iconic. Yeah. Iconic. House, when somebody says they don't have a gambling problem because if they did, they would have lost their wife in their house, is that a, is that an explanation you'd accept? Well, well, no, as somebody that's been on the brink of losing my wife and my house, my own self, I, I will say that the MJ rationale, I feel like he was speaking directly to me. I, I, I think that that is an absolutely uh, justifiable and fair description of, of the dynamic that he's uh, dealing with there. He just has a, a, he's motivated by competition. That's all. Right. I mean, we did see him. The, the low light of him from a competition standpoint was whatever game he was playing with that security guard who had the mullet. Where that was I don't even know what that game was. It was throw, see who can get the coin closest to the wall. Yeah. Was that what it was? It's pitching yes, quarters. It's a famous pitching, game. It's pitching, pitching quarters. Pitching penny. Yeah, pitching, pitching pennies. quarters, pitching pennies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's exactly. a famous game who and where? <laughs> Ask Jalen. Jalen will tell you about it. You got to ask Jalen. How bored? How bored do you have to be, and how limited do your resources have to be that this is something like House and I went to college together. We would all play wall ball in our dorm. We would hit a racquetball against the wall, and if it yeah. bounced twice, you lost a point. That was a hundred times more entertaining than pitching quarters. It was that what an that's probably my single favorite moment from the doc, just because it's like. What a cool relationship to have with MJ where you're just around him that much and like these security guards can bust his balls. Like, because you know, MJ was pissed. Yeah. Pissed that this Oh, they dude showed him. He, he yeah. goes, Why don't you go protect the United Center? Like, he's fucking furious <laughs> that he lost. <laughs> Shouts to my guy hitting Mike, hitting Mike with his own shrug, not once, but twice because he needed to make sure that Gus saw it. Unbelievable. Right. Iconic. All time. That's great. All right, so that's number six. I agree with that one. What's number five? Uh, number five, I didn't push off. Now, let me just say this. <laughs> I don't think that that's a foul at all. They, you don't call that in the NBA Finals. It's not a foul. You let that one go. This is like with Charles Smith, the famous Charles Smith play. Do I think he got fouled? Yes. Do you call that? No. I made my peace with that. You don't call it. That said, people say that Mike didn't push off. Bob Costas among them, then why is his hand on Brian Russell? What's it doing? Now people will say, okay, but he, his momentum, Brian's momentum was taking him that way. Yeah, and Mike was moving in that direction too and then pushed off on Brian Russell so that Brian could continue going in that way and then Mike could take the shot. It didn't take much. He didn't push him hard because he didn't need to because they were both moving in that direction. Now, again, should they have called it? No. But was it a push-off? Yeah. Look, what's his hand doing? I would, I would have, to me, it's like Mike should just be like, yeah, I pushed him. Fuck, fuck, fuck everyone. I did it. So what? I think there were 
there were two other people on the planet who thought Mike didn't push off and they're both interviewed immediately after his story in the doc, Bob Costas. And who was the other person? It was one other what? person came in and was like, yeah, he didn't push off. It's like, well, all right, we found the only three people on the planet who thinks he didn't push off. House, do you think he pushed off? I think it depends on your definition of push. Now, there is no question that Michael's hand makes contact with Byron's uh, uh, waist. His hip. With yeah, his hip. hip waist. That's exactly yeah. right. But is it incidental contact? Do the laws of physics, if we, did a, if we brought on a physicist <laughs> and attempted to, to establish whether or not Michael generated oppositional force to propel himself in the other direction. I'm not sure that we would get there. So I just feel like you gotta, we gotta first establish the rules of the word push before well, here, we, we, we say push, then Michael pushed them. Here's my counter. If they're on the edge of a building and Brian Russell's momentum <laughs> is going toward the edge and Michael did that with his hand, does he go to jail? I think yes. And does I, I, Brian Russell fall off the building without the push? I say no. He's going backwards, but he's not losing his balance I, yet. No, I the, think the he shove keeps going. makes him lose he's, his he balance. He goes right off the building, and the way I see it. <laughs> well, then we should be talking about that. MJ broke his ankles. Either way, Brian, That's true. Brian Russell loses. That all true. Agreed. I don't know. Uh, I like that he. I like that he pushed off. By the way, Reggie Miller in Game Four of the Indiana Series. They show that one. You want to talk about a push? He, that is a two-handed that is now a that, two-handed push to Mike's chest. And by the that's way, that's getting that our money's be, worth. That should not be called either. No. That's legit. We agree. We agree. Smart. All right. Number four, biggest lie in the Michael Jordan documentary. <laughs> number four. Uh the kind of casual reveal. Now, this is outed as a lie, but the very casual reveal that the LeBradford Smith nice game Mike story just never happened and that Mike had <laughs> had promulgated this conspiracy theory for a number of years before going, yeah, that didn't happen. I, I said that just to like, get fired up. It calls Tough into beat. question a, a, all these other stories, like the George Carl dinner story. It calls into question all these other things. Yeah, I would have the George Carl dinner story as the accompanying, for like the 4B right, on slash. the list. Because... If I'm George Carl and I'm watching that, I'm like, what? <laughs> you, you weren't fired up enough for the 1996 NBA Finals with the chance to be an iconic team? You needed it. He, but that dinner? He was very relaxed about it until George Carl snubbed him at dinner. Yeah. He's like, ah, you know, it's 96 Finals. Tough to get enough uh, energy. House, what was bigger bullshit? The George Carl dinner story or... MJ just casually admitting all these years later that poor LeBradford Smith, your guy, your bullet at the time uh, that he made the whole thing up. So I'm glad that this is number four because this is exactly the fourth plane level of existence that Michael <laughs> occupied, you know, a, a different uh, life experience than all the rest of us. I enormously enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it so much. Uh, now it's come out sometime. It wasn't... Um, uh, a lie all the way up until this documentary. Michael conceded it was a lie some time ago, but yep. it was great for the whole world to see what it took for Michael to to rev himself up uh, and to have the 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 correct mindset. They beat the the pants off the bullets in both those games, and yet right. he still had to come up yep. with some kind of 
reason to show up for the next game and and drop 36 in the first half. Like, that's not necessary. You didn't have to do that, MJ. You were going to win either way, bud. But I will say this. It has led me. I have a perpetual search in, in eBay Game-worn LeBradford Smith jersey. <laughs> uh, there's no price I won't pay for it. It just hasn't shown up yet. Well, more amazing, Jason, that LeBradford Smith scored 37 points in an NBA game. Like, did you see his, his the hitch in his jump shot? I don't know how that happened. Know, a broken clock and a broken uh, shot is right twice a day, apparently. Uh, unfortunately, LeBradford only got one game out of it, but it was what a game it was. It's that and Cal Chaney putting up 26 and 97 against MJ, the two greatest bullets rated bullets performances. All right. The number three, biggest lie of the doc. Number three. I did not keep Zeke from the dream team. (laughs) Come on. Come on. (laughs) Well, so, all right. So if we're litigating this in a court of law house, he wins. Technically, MJ wins. It's, it's literally true. He didn't have the authority to keep him from the dream team. He did not. He wasn't. It wasn't his decision. He might have shared his views, but he, it is literally and legally accurate. It's legally I, I, accurate. I, I I agree with that. According to the letter of the law, it is it is accurate. The spirit of the law, I would argue, is quite something else. Mike absolutely had the leverage to keep Zeke off the team and had to know when he mentioned that he didn't care for Isaiah, that this was on the table for Isaiah had to know that. Here's what, here's how it actually played out. The, the hatred between the two of them was known enough at that point that they know he's not playing if Isaiah's on the team. So in a weird way, he's not lying because he's like, well, you know, I never said, but they also know he's not going to be on the team with Isaiah. So it's like a chicken and an egg thing. Right. This They're is, smart that's enough why it's not to even three. bring it up because they know he wouldn't play with Isaiah. That's why it's number three. That's, it seemed like that was true of, of more than just MJ, too. There were some other guys, it seemed like, the way they, they told that, that aspect of the story, it seemed like some of the other guys were not willing to play if Isaiah was on the team. Well, here, so you have Pippen, who also hates Isaiah from all the Bulls, right. Pistons stuff. You have Bird who in 87, he does, uh, if he was black, he'd be just another good guy, that whole thing. And then Bird had to yep. go save his ass in a press conference. And then you have Magic, and there were always all these rumors. About, and those guys had a real falling out in the early 90s. And there was always rumors that uh, Isaiah spread rumors about Magic. And no, nobody's ever really been able to figure out the truth. So now you have four of the best guys in the team who are out on him. Barkley hated the Pistons. It, it's like... Here's the thing. If you're if you're gonna be in Cobra Kai, if you're gonna be Johnny Lawrence, you can't be amazed that Ralph Macchio didn't want you on a soccer team. Like it's you can't have it both ways. Sorry, Isaiah. Number two. Uh, number two. Every bull except me was doing drugs and hanging out with women in a hotel room. They were all in that same hotel room partying, <laughs> except for me. I was not there. Uh very, you know, very convenient. If one of your friends, Bill, came to you and said, oh, you're never going to, man. So here I was partying, you know, there was a, there's a work party and I go into the back office there and everybody's in there just, just going wild. I did not party. That wasn't, I wasn't involved in that. That was not me, but I saw it. Come on. 
I I just don't. Why even mention that everyone was in there except you? I I have to. I I find this suspect. Has well, I the the sequencing matters, right? The way they set it up is he was a rookie. It was at the very beginning of his relationship with the Bulls. He's right. he's finding his way. He doesn't know right. the rules of the road exactly. Right. He's and just drinking he's, drink. Drinking milk in his hotel room, milk and cookies at night, and <laughs> he's looking for his teammates to to spend some quality social time. Yeah. And lo and behold, the entire group is convened in one room. <laughs> Michael apparently did not get the invitation as a rookie. Maybe this was part of the hazing. And when he stumbled upon the scene, they did invite him. But I choose to believe that he was so offended by not having received the original invitation oh. that he said, oh, no, no. You, if you wanted me in, you would have had me in. And I think Michael went and got three of his own girls and went back to his room. I think that's fair. Hmm. So I did a deep dive on that team. And there are four guys on that team who at some point in the 80s had some sort of drug thing. So he, there's, I think, 12 guys on the team, maybe like one injured list person. This story has evolved over the years. And I think it's evolved in the same way where we tell stories, you know, like House and I watched, didn't we watch the Douglas Tyson fight together? There's a party in my house. There's probably, was probably 35 people, 40 people there, but now the years pass and there's 200 people hundreds, there in my head. Hundreds. So my guess is he went into a room and there's like five or six bulls. There's Coke. Right. There's some women. And as the years pass, it becomes the whole team was in there. The whole team obviously wasn't in there. It's a better so story. I, I think it's an exaggeration more than yeah. a lie. Okay. I agree. It's like when my mom tells stories about when I was three and they, I just know they're not true. It's like, oh yeah, you could <laughs> speak Spanish when you were three. It's like, no, I couldn't. Why are you saying that? You're <laughs> sound like a lunatic. Uh, so... I, I think the lie is that he's making it seem like he was like a, this angel compared to everybody else when he clearly right. Famous, wasn't. Famously, Mike uh, did not like to hang out uh, and carouse. Yeah, I'm going to say that's <laughs> not true. I'm going to say the carousing, being out, burning the candle piece of it was there during most of the career for MJ. All right, number one. At number one, during the NBA Finals against Utah, in Utah, I, Michael Jordan, ordered a pizza under my own name. The pizza was then delivered past the front desk up to my room by five guys who poisoned the pizza, and that is why I got sick and then played in the game that is now known as the flu game. I was poisoned by a pizza in Utah. There's a lot to work with on this one. I just think, you know. Five guys it, it, seems like a lot. I'm so I'm glad just, this is number one. I'm just imagining the phone. Hi, yeah, this is Michael Jordan, NBA superstar, shooting guard for the Chicago Bulls. I'm playing the jazz in the finals in your town. I'd like a pizza delivered it to uh, room 12B. That's my room, Michael Jordan. Uh, don't worry about the front desk. Just bring it on up. Come on. He says they're staying at the Marriott. In Salt Lake City, everything's closed except for this one mystery pizza place. Right. That somehow has five guys working at it. <laughs> and then 
somehow they have to know this pizza's for Michael Jordan. Right. I don't know why Tim Grover's there, like his his trainer dude. Like, well, how about having Tim Grover order the pizza? I don't right. know how they paid for it. Maybe they paid cash. So much of this doesn't add up. How about this? Maybe it was just a bad pizza. Well, maybe, that's the maybe other. Maybe it was just like bad pepperoni from some shitty Salt Lake City pizza place. Why do we have yeah, to but- have this whole complicated story? <laughs> right. I mean, to me, the intimation that when Grover says, yeah, these five guys in the hallway trying to look in. And I was like, Mike, I don't think you should eat this. Next thing you know, he's sick. It's like if you. Eat- I had a bad feeling. If you eat pizza late at night and then go to bed and wake up not feeling well, that's not a conspiracy, <laughs> you know, if it even happened. House, what is the most realistic version of what actually happened that night? Well, not, we have the benefit of just today, as we're taping this, a person who claims to have been the guy that prepared the pizza and <laughs> delivered the pizza has gone on the record. And his it. his tale, what he says about the the relevant facts. Now, no, he doesn't say that it was Michael on the phone and that Michael identified himself. He simply says that it was a late call from the Marriott. And this guy, by the way, uh, describes himself as an enormous Bulls fan. And it's a it's a Pizza Hut there in Salt Lake City, I think. It's the only place that's open late for a late night snack. He says a call came in from the Marriott. He said he was doing the math in his head. It has to be for the Bulls. So he makes the pizza. He's psyched to make the pizza for his own team. And he says it's him and one other guy that went to the hotel room. It wasn't five. He said there weren't even five people that worked at the whole store. But they they made it through the security uh, uh, rigmarole because they knew the room number. Now, the room number was given. And they walked it up there, and they were peeking. They were trying to see when they gave the pizza in there. So I think, you know, Grover might have exaggerated a little bit. But I have an explanation for what's going on here. Part of the story involves the overwhelming stench of cigar smoke. And a crucial element of this story relating to the pizza is that when it came into the room, Michael Jordan spit on the pizza yes, so that nobody else would eat it. How about this? Michael Jordan poisoned himself. Oh, because of the <laughs> cigar? Uh, oh, interesting. That's this. exactly right. A known carcinogen. The wow. cigar, the tobacco from the cigar. He has tobacco juice in his mouth and puts it all over that pizza and then eats that cigar pizza by himself and makes himself sick. You did I, it, I, MJ. I love that's this. That's amazing. It's a self-poisoning. <laughs> he Sounds did like it. Game I of Thrones. What I Game of Thrones characters self-poison themselves? So this is incredible. Wow. I I, I buy that's it. A bet. I My theory you, I was it. that it was a shitty pizza place in Salt Lake City that the pepperoni might have been out all night. I won't stand for it. I won't tolerate any pepperoni slander. I, yeah. I, let me let me ask you guys this. How how many times did like ESPN legal have to go over Tim Grover's interview right there to make sure that he is not slandering this pizza place and the pizza mm. guy? Because he, he doesn't say it, but he comes pretty close to saying they fucked with the pizza. He's like, these five guys, they're peeking in. And then I said, damn, Jay, I don't know about this. I don't know if you should eat it. 
I more importantly, why wasn't there room service at the Marriott where the Bulls were staying? <laughs> what know, is this right? like eighteen forty two? Great question. Great late nineties. What hotel does Utah have late night down. room service? Ridiculous. All right, I agree with that list, Jason. It was a pleasure. House, Thank you. Pleasure as always. I like your theory. Talk Thanks, to you guys fellas. soon. Good times. All right, we're going to bring in the All the Smoke guys in one second. First, FanDuel Sportsbook. They're just as excited as I am about this Sunday's Champions for Charity golf match featuring Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning on one team, Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady on the other. Check this out. For new users, FanDuel running an incredible odds boost on the match. If you sign up for FanDuel Sportsbook right now, you can bet either duo at insane 10 to 1 odds for your first wager. That's a hundred payout on a max bet of $10. Who am I betting on? I'll tell you who I'm betting on. Not who you think I'm betting on. Tom Brady, I'm not rooting for you anymore. I'm just not. I'm not doing it. I'm rooting for Tiger and I'm rooting for Peyton Manning. I'm still in that spiteful, I can't believe Tom Brady left the Patriots part of my life. So I'm rooting for uh, for the bad guys normally. Tiger Peyton Manning, I'm on your side. FanDuel Sportsbook available in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, West Virginia, and now Colorado. If you're new to FanDuel Sportsbook and ready to claim your 10 to 1 odds boost, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. Be sure to sign up with my promo code BS so they know I sent you. FanDuel Sportsbook, promo code BS. 21 plus, present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, or Colorado. Must wager in designated offer market, $10 minimum first deposit required, $100 max bonus. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Without further ado, Stephen Jackson, Matt Barnes. Here we go. All right. These guys, Matt Barnes, Stephen Jackson. Um, a lot of people are creating sports podcasts. Most of them are bad. And these guys have actually created a really good podcast that breaks news and pulls good performances out of the guests. And just walk me through how, how did you decide the two of us? I'll start with Matt. How did, how do we, how did you decide the two of you should even have a podcast and what were the goals initially? Um, we were both working, uh, respectively for ESPN and Fox at the time, we literally back and forth. And we just kept getting positive feedback. Like, we like how real you guys are. We like this. We like that. And then they kind of started tagging us together. Like, you and Jack are this, this, and that. And I'm just like, okay. So then we're at my house in the Bay one time, kicking back, you know, doing what we do. And we're like, you know, we should do something together. And, you know, I can speak for myself. Like, I really didn't even know what a podcast was at the time. But I just knew there wasn't as much censorship. You know, with ESPN, obviously, Disney and Fox being Fox, we kind of have to walk a straight line. Uh, doing that, you know, so I'm just like, shit, let's do a podcast. And Jack's like, shit, I'm with it. He's like, what is a podcast? <laughs> you know what I mean? So fast forward to me speaking on the Marcus Cousins uh, documentary, the, the resurgent, I think it was when he was coming back. One of the producers there was like, hey, I heard you, you uh, you're going to, you want to do a podcast. I'm like, I, I think so. I don't really know what a podcast is. He's like, we well, need to talk to Showtime. I'm like, all right, shit, get a meeting with Showtime. No sizzle, no nothing, just kind of catching the vibe off me and, and, and Jack, and, and they took it. So I don't think we knew what we had at the time. You know, it's funny. We were talking about this, you know, before we started. We didn't know what we had at the time. Like I said, I, we didn't know what a podcast was. They were starting Showtime Basketball, but they didn't really know where it was headed. And uh, we struck gold. 
Well, it's the biggest, biggest regret of the last three years of my career. I, I just can't believe this isn't at the ringer. This is the most ringer podcast there is. Captain Jack, it's good to be working with you again. We go way back to the Grantland basketball hour for about eight minutes. You, me, and Jalen. But that was really fun. I, that was the first time you were on TV, right? Well, I, you, 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 you always say that you started me on ESPN, but you really started me on TV and doing and doing anything like that. Period. That was my first time ever getting behind the microphone, asking questions, or doing anything like that. So you, you were natural. You were good. You were good right <laughs> away. I knew it. I was like, this guy has it. So I was thinking about you guys. And I want to go into the pot and all that stuff, but going backwards, I've been watching a lot of old basketball games because I'm like a, you know, I'm in withdrawal. I need hoops. It's the spring. I'm used to watching playoff games right now. The uh, We Believe team was on. It's a couple of those Mavericks games from 07. Mm -hmm. And the crowd. Insane. In my opinion, so Steve Kerr, who's been in a lot of big games and has won championships and stuff, but announced... I think game six and was Mm -hmm. like, that's the greatest crowd I've ever been in the house for ever. And I'm watching that game and I'm seeing what the crowd was doing for you guys in those games. Is it fair to say we will never have a basketball crowd like that ever again? That was like the last perfect basketball crowd. I mean, because you, you, you had a lot of things that made that moment, you know, it was a 13 year playoff drought that arena or Oracle arena was one of a kind that city, Oakland, is one of a kind. The team we had was one of a kind. You had a whole bunch of castaways that came together and 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 found the love of basketball, one common goal, the love of basketball, and was able to build a family and a, and a brotherhood and win games and have have some success along with the coach who let his whole team be them, didn't try to transform anybody, let everybody be themselves. All that coming together made that moment. So I don't, I, I don't think that moment will ever be duplicated because it was so many things that made that moment happen. Yeah, I think it was, it was a perfect storm, you know, like Jack said. And I think the fact that I always like to, I remember along that run, I think one of the things we were proudest of was putting on for the city because that fan base was amazing. And, and you know, and they had been through some ups and downs in all major sports across the platform, but they'd always been consistent fan base. You know, whether the Raiders sucked, whether the Warriors sucked, A's, Giants, Niners, whatever it was, they always had a very loyal fan base. So when we kind of put our, you know, got things going that second half of the season in that stretch run, we just continue to feel the energy build around the city and then the games. And, you know, I remember even in the first round of the playoffs, when we, when, you know, during shoot around, like, first of all, the par- parking lot was filled when we're getting to the games early. You know I mean? We get to, the, as players, we get to the game three, four hours before, parking lots filled, barbecue and smoking weed, loud music. I'm like, this is already a vibe and we're not even in the arena yet. So we get to the arena during warmups and it's filled up and people are standing and, and moving around. It, it was one of the most electric feelings and, and atmospheres I've ever been in. And it's funny you mentioned Steve Kerr because he said it, you know, to this day, it was the loudest arena he's ever been in. And he, you know, he coached the dynasty, you know, with the, you know, at the same place, but it was a different time. Tickets were more affordable. Right. The city was so hungry for, for a winner that it just all, like I said, it was a perfect storm for it, for it to happen. You know, in that game six, it's basically tied at halftime. And then in the second half, you guys start making some shots and it's like a rocket ship. And the Mavs are, they're almost like Michael Spinks in the Tyson fight. Like they're just getting, (laughs) everyone's deer in the headlights. Everyone's demolished. You guys, 
Jack's making like 30 footers. <laughs> like Baron's dunking over 6'10 guys. Like it, it's honestly, it's like the whole team got supercharged. And I don't know. I just think as we head into this decade, especially with how expensive the seats have gotten, the type of arenas they're building. Um, I just don't, I don't know if we see that again. Why didn't that team beat Utah in your opinion? Because you look back and you think like, man, that it, it should have happened. Well, see, people don't know game six before game six when we beat Dallas, BD came to us before the game and told us that he was on one leg and he didn't have it. He came and told us that before the game. And uh, we knew we knew we had to finish them off and we knew we had already had their number. But I think after we beat Dallas, we, we were so uh, satisfied with, with beating them and doing that for coach because we want because, you know, coach had a situation with Mark Cuban. We yeah. wanted to beat coach. And, 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 and even going to the first two games, we look at the first two games. Me personally, I feel along with getting screwed by the referees and missing free throws, we had them beat. If you look yeah. at the first two, if you look at the first two games, and look at the referees we had the mm. first two games. Mm. You will see what I'm talking about, Bill. We, we, we missed free throws, but look at the referees we had for the first two games in Utah, and then you tell me what you think. Wait, was that was that a Donahue season? Was he in there? <laughs> he was, right? That was his last year. Oh, man. Now I'm going to have to research this after the pod. Oh, shit. <laughs> you know what's funny is we're, uh, we're in the midst of getting a We Believe documentary together. And um, I sat down with Baron the other day and we were kind of just rehashing and we talked about this and he pointed out something that I never really thought of. And he kind of feels like Nelly let his foot off the gas. You know what I mean? It was so much built into kicking Dallas's ass that year and we did it. And like Jack said, we had celebrated like we had won a championship. Not that we weren't focused for the next round, but if you look at the next round, the rotation was different than the first round. We were doing stuff that we hadn't done to get us there. And then on top of some very questionable calls down the stretch in game one and game two in Utah, um, it, it just didn't work out for us, you know, but we, I, we felt like, cause we had, we had had success against Utah that season, you know, so yeah. we like we had a very good team and we had a chance to do something special and it just kind of died in the second round, unfortunately. Well, then you would have had the Spurs the next round, which would have been the captain Jack revenge series. Well, you would have been I, ready I, for I, that one. I, I would have felt good about this series for some of reason because I know that team. I knew them well. And I knew, you know, I, I'm not saying we was going to stop Tim, but they had nobody on that team to beat Baron Davis. If you look at that season, we beat them both times at home that season. So, you know, I, I was comfortable with playing them. Well, and you guys had a whole edge that that was one of the ways to try to beat those Spurs teams because they were so polite. Such a nice group of guys, which is... The way to really go at them was to 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 really try to bow them and be assholes to them. Yeah, then, yeah, that was, that was our specialty. Yeah, yeah. You, you couldn't you you couldn't rattle Tim. You know, Tim was one of those guys that always had his composure. But the other guys on the team, if Tim not going, you know, Tony's not really getting open shots. Manu's not really getting open shots because came many of those guys in the Spurs organization uh, create for themselves. You know, they want guys to spot up shoot. All they want is the point guard to be able to create. So we would have been in a great situation. Matt, what's the best team you've ever been on when you look back? Because you were you were on a lot of teams and you were in a lot of moments. What was what was like the peak? Um, I think you know, getting although I got hurt going into the playoffs, probably the the Golden State team the second time around. You know, with KD, Steph, Draymond. Yes. But you know, our We Believe team was very talented. I felt like we were one piece away, and and then you know, being able to have a podcast earlier. 
fish uh, uh, at All-Star, you know, he really, like, we were all, after that season, we were all into the thing that we were supposed to trade Jay Rich and then and, and kind of a trade to get Kevin Garnett. And we felt like we could have got him. That would have been something special. But um, the, the Lob City teams, very, yeah. very talented, but too much ego um, between our stars. And then getting a chance to play with Kobe, um, Phil Jackson's last year where, you know, obviously he, he's, you know, he's diagnosed with cancer and, and he ends up stepping away. I got hurt. I tore my knee that season in February, but there we were, they had just won two in a row going for a three peat. Um, and then kind of everything falls down at the end. So I would probably say, well, it's um, gotta be 17 has to be the best team, even yeah. though you were hurt. Yeah. But I, I yeah. think that's in the short list of best teams of all time. Like, yeah. yeah, 121 points a game in the playoffs, and it was it was it was Durant ugly. and Curry, Jesus, it was really ugly with that team. You know what I mean? And the time while I was there, the chemistry was incredible. You know, you hear stories after and all this kind of stuff, but you know, and I'm really big on picking up on shit. And there was no at the time, it was all about basketball. It was all about winning, and 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 that's what made that team so special because there were so many individual stars on that team. Well, I, I did three, three or four podcasts with Durant that year, which were, he was great. And it was a lot, it was a lot like the podcast that you guys do, where it was just like, he's like, ask me anything. Everything's on the table. He was so happy that first year. Yeah. Cause he went from that Oklahoma city offense and that little tiny town to this big city. And, and all of a sudden everybody's playing basketball. And I, my theory was always after he won and went toe to toe with LeBron and was better than him in the finals and mm -hmm. was, and he thought he was going to get the credit as like, he was the guy now and it just didn't happen. And I don't know if he was ever the same after that. You agree with that, Steven? Yeah. I mean, he, he, for him to go there and win the championship, you know, he expected all the praise, but people, the only thing they could say was he was a snake. Yeah. You're supposed to win by going there. Yeah. You're a trader. All that kind of, they just, and you know, and, and that's what happens when you at top at the top of anything, football, journalism, acting, when you're at the top, people hate to see you at the top. They're going to find reasons to pull down at you. And KD is no different. But um, I'm glad he I'm glad he got a, a, a stronger armor and able to deal with more things now and, and having a, a platform to speak his mind and, and, and kind of reply on things other people say about him. And that's all he can do. But you got to have tough skin. Yeah. You know, you Matt, you talked about the egos with that Clipper team. That 2017 Warriors, as you said, everything was perfect. And by the time we got into year three, you could see it wasn't. When did you when did you know things had changed? If you're talking about year one, year two, year three of that Warriors journey, when did from afar watching it, when we were like, uh oh, this doesn't feel right anymore? With that Warrior team or with the Clipper team? With the Warrior team. I want to talk um, about the Clippers later. I, I think it was after that first year. You know, when KD clearly came out and, and proved to the world that he was the best player in the world um, and, and didn't get that credit. Um, you know, we had a chance to talk with Draymond on the podcast about it. And, you know, I was obviously I retired after that season and he just kind of felt like the energy was off. It, it, uh, KD's, whole, KD's whole energy changed, you know, so, so from the outside looking in, you know, I couldn't really see it because I'm on the outside now, although I was still communicating with those guys. I yeah. didn't see it because I wasn't in the locker room. But slowly, but uh, but surely, you know, things started to unravel. You know, whether it was his Katie's unhappiness with not getting the credit or, 
you know, you hear that there's frustration about guys doing, taking too many shots. Like you hear a lot of stuff, but you know, it's hard for me to speak on because I wasn't in that situation. But to me, when you look back on the history and actually watching the last dance, it's harder the more you win because there's more more opinions. There's more individuality after you finally win as a group, like, fuck it, maybe I need to go get more money or maybe I need more shots or maybe I need this and I need that. So when you speak on teams that are fortunate enough to win championships and become a dynasty, you know, when people, when when Mike stepped away and, 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 uh, you know, when, when, when KD left, it's hard to say, even though on talent on paper, these teams still have a lot of talent, but to me, the hardest thing is being able to stay mentally tough and mentally focused on the task at hand because it only gets harder with winning. I mean, you saw Mike was, you know, nearly driven into retirement the first time because there was just so much media on his head and it's not even the type of media that there is today. So imagine that on steroids, you know? So I think the media plays a huge part and I think it played a huge part in the Warriors. I think it really, you know, they found a little chink in the armor and found yeah. their way in and then ran with it. You know, Pat Riley called that the disease of more. You win when you when you haven't won yet, it's really easy to get everybody on the same page. But once you win, everybody's like, All right, time for me to get more. Right. Give me more money. Give me mm-hmm. more shots. I need yep. more minutes. And it just keeps going. I mean, this is why Captain Jack ended up in Atlanta after 2003. Sorry. Right? You won the title. It's like, all right, give me a, co- I, I want a contract now. How, what did you sign for? Like, it was over 20 million, right? Well, they, they, they offered me a three year, 10 years, a three year, $10 million deal. And, and really um, was trying to save all the money for Manu and Tony. And Tony. So I left and went to Atlanta for a million, for a million dollars and ended up signing a six year deal. $36 million deal, but it equaled up to $42 million. Right. Which was, you had already gotten your title. It was time to go. I This is why it's so hard to keep teams together just in general. And then on top of it, you know, you have the the any of the ego stuff that might pop up and all those different things. Like in the last dance, they didn't really go into this as much as I thought they would, but you know, Jordan's talked about it. The 93 Bulls, you had Horace Grant. He's just tired of Jordan at that point. He knows he has a big contract coming. Pippen's mad that he's underpaid. BJ Armstrong wants to play more. Stacey King wants Horace Grant's job. And these are all things that after you win a couple titles, uh, it just gets harder. But the, I guess the difference with the Spurs, um, Steven, was that the, when Duncan's your best guy, it's really hard to have bad chemistry, right? I mean, it's it's pretty impossible. Yeah, he, he leads by example. And then when you got a guy like Tim, you can put anything around him. You know, I think... Um, they won that. They won that championship with David '99. Then Dave's last year, we won in 2003. That was the blueprint to pop. That you can put anything around Tim Duncan, and play in that system and win for for years. And um, you know, it's, it, it's it's just one of those situations. You have a Kobe Bryant. You have a LeBron James. You can build around that. It really don't matter what you put around it. That guy's gonna be dominant. And when a guy like Tim, you know, pop taught others through Tim. You know, he got on Tim extra hard. So it. If I can get on Tim, you got to take it as well. So, and then that, and that's how Pop worked. And um, if you didn't buy in, you know, you get you. He sent you out of there. And right. uh, that was the, that was the quickest way to win a championship. Just go in there and buy in. And I think at the end of the day, everybody benefited from winning the championship and being in that system. On the outside looking in, to me, I looked at the Spurs like the Patriots. You mm-hmm. know, what I mean, you have Pop, you have Belichick, you have Brady, you have Tim Duncan. 
So you're able to plug pieces in and out because the system around is so solid. Management is solid that we can plug players in here and there. And then they know when they're coming here, like they said, I'm sure Belichick got on Tom, you know, Pop was on Tim. So if I can talk to Tim anyway, you damn sure are going to listen to who, what, you know, whatever is going on and realizing it's all about the team and all about winning. You know, as a Boston fan, I really appreciated that you brought the Patriots in there. So thanks for that. This is why I have Duncan ahead of Kobe though, which is an opinion that I don't think most people have, but I just feel like Duncan at basically any point of his career in the first 10 years, definitely. And then even the next four or five, if you put decent guys around him, you're making the playoffs. Easy. And if they're like even above average, now you're guaranteed 50 wins. And if it's like a B minus supporting cast with one other good guy, now I'm in the, I'm potentially in the semifinals and so on. And I, I just don't think Kobe was like that. I, I think if it was just Kobe and a bunch of mediocre guys, we saw what was going to happen in the mid 2000s. You're basically in like that 41 to 45 win range. And that's mm-hmm. it. Steven, who do you, if you had to pick one of those two guys, who would you pick to build a team around? To build a team around uh, me personally, I would go with Kobe. I wouldn't go with Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan okay. Tell me why. Well, because of Kobe's attitude and, and his, I, I, I want somebody with Kobe's attitude and his approach to the game to lead my team. Uh, Tim, Tim, Tim wasn't really too outspoken, and Pop had to do a lot of that. Hmm. Uh, I, I had to do a lot of that when I was there. You know, I had to be the protector and the guy to get in guys' faces. I think with Kobe Bryant, he's going to give you everything that you need in one in one body to lead a team to the championship. Pop had to put certain different personalities and different aspects around Tim Duncan. For that organization to be who it is, it's been times where Pop, the second time Pop, Pop brought me back, he was like, the main reason I'm bringing you back because the team needs some nasty. We don't mm. have no nasty. You know what I mean? So Tim was in the right situation. You know what I'm saying? Kobe Bryant, I think you can put Kobe Bryant in any situation and he's going to bring guys along, give them the attitudes and more accomplishments, which Tim did too. But my, me personally, I would go with Kobe Bryant. And I, I feel the same way too. And I, I think, and this is not to discredit anything that Tim done, because he's obviously one of the greatest power or the greatest power forward ever. But there was a consistency throughout his career that he had that coach. Kobe went through a lot of bullshit coaches outside of Phil. You know what I mean? And and uh, an ongoing beef between him and Shaq, where they ultimately had to choose between one. So I think, like Jack said, and then watching. I got chills watching the last dance when they finally showed like MJ in practice and how competitive he was and how he got on people's ass and cussed them out and was about to fight him because that was Kobe. No matter what it took, he was going to win. And then you hear people like Channing Fry coming out and crying like, well, that kind of shit, it all win at all costs. Got, I mean, these guys wanted to win. It wasn't about making friends. When you go into the NBA, your goal is to win. Your goal is to win as much as you can and make as much money as you can while you can. If you happen to develop some amazing friendships, such Jack and I, that'll last a lifetime, that's just a cherry on top. But you're not going in looking to make friends. You're going in to win. So mm-hmm. guys that win at all costs, like how would you not want to play with guys that are going to do absolutely everything to win? You're going to hurt feelings. But I, that, that's what happens all the way to the top in any business. You know, to become a CEO or become a billionaire, you're stepping on people daily. You know what I mean? So to win championships and at the level and as many as these guys won, that's what it took. So when I was sitting back watching the last dance, I'm just like, holy shit, like this is Kobe 
all over again. You know, there, there's documented him elbowing the shit out of Sasha and cussing people out. And then you see, you know, you see MJ punching Steve in the face and cussing people like that's what these guys were built different. And, and to me, that's why those two are one and two in my book. And LeBron is a very close third and has the ability to pass Kobe at two and be in the conversation with Jordan at one. But the, but MJ and Kobe were different. And like Jack said, they have they had it all in one one package. Like they had the dog, they had the intelligence, they obviously had the skill level, they had the mental capacity, and they had that fire to win at all costs. And to me, I love that. Well, I feel like I just lost the argument because I'm outvoted <laughs> two to one, and you guys both you guys played against both guys, so I'm kind of fucked here. <laughs> this feels like a loss, uh, Matt. What, what's the What's like the number one memory you have of Kobe as a teammate? Cause you caught him at the tail end of, of his prime there when, which can be dangerous, especially in basketball when somebody mm-hmm. is still carrying themselves like the best player in the league, but they're not anymore. Just his mental approach, his, his, his approach to the game every day changed. I got a chance to travel out to orange County and work out with them. We're working out before the sun comes up. You mean we're getting shots that we're running on the track. We're lifting weights. His mental approach. One quick story. We were flying to Spain one time uh, in the preseason. And we're, everyone's knocked out. I don't even know what time it is. But the whole cabin's knocked out. But I see Kobe over there with some headphones on and bobbing his head. I'm like, oh, shit. This dude's over here rapping again. Let me go talk some shit to him because I know he can't rap. So I end up going over there. And I'm, I'm looking. And he has this piece of scratch paper with maybe like 30 basketball courts drawn on it. And I'm just like, I was like what are you doing? And he's like, I'm drawing sets in the triangle to figure out where you guys are going to be open. And I'm just like, okay, explain. He's like, well, I never look at the first defender. I'm always looking at the second defender and the help side. So I'm trying to figure out where you, LO, Ron, everyone else is going to be open when, and he had his self on all different angles of the court and how the defense would shade to him and where he felt we were going to be open at. And when I saw that, I'm just like, this is insane but it's a beautiful mind because he was obsessed wow. with getting the most out of not only himself but us you know kobe was someone that'll cuss your ass out in a heartbeat but most of the time he'll just look at you because he's leading by example he's diving on the floor he's doing absolutely whatever he can he used to get pissed off sometimes obviously me and ron were the defensive guys but if someone would get go and fuck that i'm guarding him like move i'm like chill out bro you know like we got but he was that kind of guy and to me that's what puts him ahead of LeBron is just that killer. And this is no, you know, all due respect to LeBron, his greatness. Kobe was going to be a killer. And if we were going to sink, it was going to be because of a move that Kobe made. And that's what I want. Like, like Jack said, I want a leader like that. And you've, the closest LeBron came to tapping into that. Probably 2018, his last Cleveland season. When, uh, I, I talked about this on this podcast, but I went to game one when he had like 50 and that it was the famous J.R. Smith game. I was there. That was the most ridiculous individual performance I think I've seen on a basketball court because it's basically him against one of the great teams of all time. And he's not only controlling the game, but when he really wanted to, he was just getting layups and it kind of didn't matter who was there physically. It was honestly like watching Wilt Chamberlain or somebody. I know Wilt was like a center and seven feet tall and all that, but he's just like, I'm just backing my dude down and getting a layup. No matter what. Jack, do you feel that way with him that year, that that was something, he was tapping into something a little different? Well, especially after that game one. His numbers after that game one was unbelievable. For them to lose that game, uh, it really crushed me because I I I really never seen 
And with my own eyes, a performance like that, you know, live in the playoffs. I think I think that probably was the best performance I've ever seen. Me too. By, by a player with my own eyes in the playoffs. Um, it, it was just unbelievable, man. And for him to lose that game, it hurt me because you definitely seen him tap into a, his be, him being the best player ever. You know, the way he was playing that night, walking mm-hmm. to the baskets and one, just making every right play. Like, he was, he was tapping into something different, and, and, and that loss kind of pulled from that. Well, he also had that. I mean, there was one moment when I, because I, I was sitting close. There was one moment when he got in it with Curry, and I actually thought he was going to punch Curry. And I, <laughs> I've never seen that kind of level of anger with him. It was like he was, he, it was almost like he knew he needed to get to that place. Had you seen anything like that, Matt? No, I hadn't, and I, but, but I loved it because to me, that was the old, like, you know, to me, he it was, he has that Magic Johnson charisma about himself. You know what I mean? Like it was never, you know, MJ and Kobe are different. You're not, you don't want to, you know, compare the mentalities, but LeBron's greatness, you've never seen him really have to get to, to do that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But to, to be able to see that, to be able to see, and I'll even take it a step further after I retired, I want to say this season, I got a chance to kind of step away from the game, obviously, but sit courtside at a Nets game uh, when the Lakers played him. And the way that LeBron can completely controls the game from being that close, because I've always been a competitor, so I'm always guarding him, so I don't get a chance to enjoy the essence of, of what is going on. To see the way he completely has his imprint on a basketball game and the way he's able to control it, for me to see that courtside in person, that watching through the TV, I'm just like, Oh, I get it now, but I got I got to feel it as a fan, and it's incredible because I I got a chance. I never got a, obviously a chance to just sit and watch Kobe as a fan, but to be a fan of LeBron, obviously a competitor, but a fan post career, but to see the way he has his imprint on the game, and obviously he's older, he's not playing the defense he used to play, but still he completely controlled the game from the tip to the final buzzer, and to see that as as an athlete and someone who used to compete against him. It was incredible to me. Can you talk about the physicality? Because that dude's 275 pounds. He could say he's 250, but he's not 250. He's six foot eight and a half. And I I would say he's at least 270. And both of you ended up, because he put on, if you look at like the 2008 Celtics series, where he's still basically a kid. He's probably, I don't know, 22, 23 years old at that point. And then after that year, he really started to put on the weight by, by, Team time he gets back to Cleveland, he's looking like a tight end. What was it like when he actually was like putting his body into you and you're trying to just defend him on the low post? A freight train. You know what I mean? The hardest, you know, someone that you have to wrap, you know, you see so many times when guys have to like try to wrap him up and he goes through them. Like he's someone you literally, and with my football background, like when I tried to wrap him up, I almost had to tackle him because that's how he would take. And I was 230. He would take me with him like I was a child. You know what I mean? So you really have to wrap and put that extra oomph, put your shoulder on him, and really make sure he doesn't get that ball up. You know, but for him to be 6'9", 270, and moving like a point guard in that body, it's it's crazy. I played I played in Charlotte at 260. And um What? Yeah. 260? I, 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 wow. Yeah, my, my my second year, going to my second year in Charlotte, I went there. I, I got that summer I blew up. And um most of it was in his calves. Most of it was in my calves, but uh, I'm uh, I'm guarding <laughs> that, that time, and um, it was easy to guard him. The next year, I got back in better shape, and I got down like 235, 240. 
And he was just walking me to the basket. I mean, walking me to the basket. I, I saw, if you ain't 260, 270, if you ain't a power forward in the league, you, ain't, you don't have a chance against LeBron. Right. Yeah, because, yeah. like, even you see in the last dance, Carl Malone, and it's like the end of his prime Carl Malone at that point, 97, 98. But you think of Carl Malone as this physically imposing power forward. You didn't want to take a charge from him ever, especially because he's putting his knee in your balls. But this big ass dude. And I think LeBron's bigger than him. I actually think they're literally the same height. And I think LeBron's probably 15 pounds stronger than him. And Carl was like the strongest guy in the league mm -hmm. in the nineties. So I, I, I think that piece of it, the physicality of his game is the thing always that jumps out to me when I see him in person, where you're just kind of like, hey, Shaq was like that too, especially younger Shaq. But you also yeah. think like when you mentioned strong, big, like, Carl imposed as well. Shaq imposed as well. LeBron has always been so gifted. Like, to me, I wish he would bully more. You know what yes. I mean? He always is the strongest, biggest, fastest guy out there. He's got a way of being so agile and swift. But there's times where, like, I would look at it just as a fan. Even in the league, I'm like, damn, why is he just – I would love to see him just fuck everybody. I'm the strongest dude out here. I'm going to bully you. But he was always so skilled that he never really took – bully tactics that you know you watch early Shaq Shaq used to bully people and take pride in it you know what I mean because that's what he had but LeBron was so skilled that you know to me his game was always skill and finesse but he could have if he wanted to at any time just bullied the whole league yeah there's this unbelievable clip of Shaq young Shaq that pops up on Twitter sometimes where of just him not just dunking on people but like dunking on their souls where they're just going sprawling and it's not like 45 seconds. It's, it's like a seven minute clip of him just dunking on everybody and then knocking them backwards by 10 feet. He's, he's another guy who gets lost in time, but, but it's not, he was pulling down whole back. He's not just, I mean, he broke plenty right. of backwards. He was pulling down the basket, the yeah. whole set. You know what I mean? Like Jesus. Well, what you were talking about with LeBron there. That was why I thought the Lakers were going to win the title this year. I thought they were hitting a point right before the pandemic hit where they were starting to figure out like LeBron and Davis together physically. Nobody can match this. We, we are going to get to the line 25 times in a playoff game and we're going to get offensive rebounds and we're going to be able to get close to the rim. Hey, Steven, how did you feel right before the season stops? who was actually going to win the title. Were you thinking Lakers or somebody else? Yeah, I, I had Lakers at the beginning of the season. I, I just haven't seen LeBron with that dynamic of a big man like Anthony Davis. I called Anthony Davis Tim Duncan on steroids and <laughs> because because Tim wasn't athletic and he didn't shoot threes. Uh, right. AD, AD does all those things. And I've never seen LeBron with a guy of that with that much talent. So with the way LeBron is playing and having that AD, I had them winning the championship. I didn't see nobody beating him. If anybody gave him a chance, it would have been the Clippers. And like we just talked about, the Clippers, the only way they can beat them is by punking them. And, right. the, Clippers, and the Clippers have that capability. What do you think, Matt? I had the Clippers. Uh, I had the Clippers for the fact that what, what Jack said is they had a they, they had a, you know, a cage full of dogs. You know what I mean? And then adding uh, the Morris twin at the end, Kawhi and Paul are going to do their thing. But to me, they had so much more chemistry and camaraderie as a team because they had bought in. Like, you, you dropped – you think about it, you drop Kawhi in the season before with the Clipper team that was battling Golden State, the way Clippers battled mm -hmm. Golden State without yeah. a real star, and there's no telling what would have happened that year. So to me, uh, I get the edge of coaching and chemistry to the Clippers, 
and be, and for another reason is outside of LeBron, who was really, I mean, AD is talented, but he needs a LeBron to kind of get him going. Who was going to get there? Who's going to get his shot off? And to me, the Clippers had three guys that all can close games for him. So I gave them the edge, but at the same time, I would have loved to see LeBron. We'll still would we'll still love to see LeBron win a championship with the Lakers and, and do it this year of all years to honor Kobe. You don't think uh, you don't think it was a bad sign that the Clippers were so up and down during the season that they never seemed to go on one of those 12, 13 game runs where they're just kicking ass where they play well for two games. Then all of a sudden they lose by 30 and then this guy wasn't playing it. I, I never felt like they were in the right rhythm. What would you think of that, Jack? I was thinking that too. You know, I think that they needed to have everybody playing so they can go into the playoffs with some camera strength and camaraderie. And they was doing that before everything happened. They they had started doing that. They they started playing Paul, playing Paul and uh, Kawhi at the same time, trying to uh, accolade the Morris twin. And the bench was playing well. Even Patrick Beverly was playing well. So um, I think they were starting to do that. I just think uh, they wasn't at the peak that they needed to be going to the playoffs. And I, I think you know coming back from this might hurt them. If they just yeah. got to the playoffs. Let's take a quick break just to tell you about a couple of ringer pods in case you weren't aware of them. Flying coach with Pete Carroll and Steve Kerr. Bill Murray is on this week. Boom bust. The rise and fall of HQ, our new narrative podcast series. That's happening. The wire way down in the hole. TV concierge on Spotify. That's happening as well. Behind the billions. Our billions recap from Brian Koppelman and David Levine. Yeah. And then I want you to just start thinking ahead to next week when we launch our new podcast with Rachel Lindsay and Van Lathan. I will tell you the name on Sunday night. We shot a pilot this week. This thing is going to be awesome. I'm so excited for it. So get ready for that. Get ready on Sunday's pod with Brasillo. I will tell you the name. I will tell you how to subscribe to it. That's all happening on the Ringer Podcast Network. And while we're here, I hope you check out the Spotify app because uh, like a couple of our pods, Music Exists, TV Concierge, The Hottest Take, our Spotify exclusive, but in general, an awesome app that we're very proud to be affiliated with, especially I love being able to change speeds, uh, pop into the library and and just coming out of music, just going right over the pods, the whole thing. So check it out all on the Spotify app where you can find the All The Smoke podcast as well. Let's get back to those guys. What was what was the best team? I mean, you won a title, so I'm mm -hmm. sure that I'm sure that team's in the running. But are we sure that Pacers team pre melee that season wasn't the best team you've ever been on? Uh, that if we would have played the Spurs in the seven game series, we would have beaten. We would have took their heart. That 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 Indiana team was the best team I played on all around. We had we had Jamal Tinsley. You had me at the two. You had Ron Artest at the four. You had Jermaine O'Neal. I mean, you had Ron Artest at three. Jermaine O'Neal at the four and Jeff Foster at the five. He had Reggie Miller coming off the bench because really Reggie was hurt at the beginning of the season. He was trying to get well. We had uh shit. Uh Scott Pollard. We had we had a we had a crazy team, man. And a, an experienced team. We didn't have a young team. That was Danny Granger's rookie year. So we um that team was a talented team. And I just, I just hate the brawl happened because when the brawl happened, if you look at this, the standings, we were the best team in the league. We had beat everybody already. And what? the only time and the only team that, that was standing our way was Detroit. And we beat Detroit by 15 that game. I mean, that's the what if. The melee now and the Artest, like everybody knows that part. But the that was always the great what if for me for that season. Because even if you look at the finals, it's not a great finals. And it was like a Detroit team that wasn't as good as they were the year before against a San Antonio team that 
where Duncan's like pretty banged up. Like he had yep. was coming off the Olympics. He's playing basically on one and a half legs. The the Manu and Tony Manu was good in the finals, Man, but Manu played Manu played his ball yeah. in the finals. But it's I don't know. I, I just feel like they were beatable. And then you look at that Indiana that melee game. You guys go into Detroit and you kick their ass. It was one of the reasons the fight happened. It was an <laughs> ass kicking where you guys are carrying yourself on their court like you're the best team in the league, which I thought you were. And I, I thought that's a what if season to me. A lot of people didn't know too that um, Ben Wallace was was just, had just buried his brother, so he was coming back from that. So when Ron fouled him at the end of the game, and they was getting their butt kicked at home. All that just triggered like that. So I kind of understand why Ben reacted the way he did. But uh, I hate it happened, man, because that was definitely a championship season for us. Matt, we did when we were at Grantland, we decided to do an oral history on the melee. So we sent Jonathan Abrams, who's one of our best writers, to to try to chase it down. And one of the first people we go after is Jack. And we're waiting for him after the game. J- Abrams is waiting for him after the game. And we're like, ah, he probably doesn't want to talk about this or because, you know, th- there weren't a lot of oral histories back then. And he comes in, he's like, hey, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the Artest fight. And Jack's like, I've been waiting to talk about this for years. <laughs> and gave like an hour. And I still have the email Abram sent me after. He's like, you're not going to believe what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> Steven Jackson was so excited to get all of his thoughts on this. And then we ended up writing this great oral history about it. Um, the, this Clippers documentary is out about uh, about 2014 and Sterling and all that stuff. Um, and I was working on Countdown that year, and we actually had that Sunday game. We were we were doing the uh, the shows, you know, before and it was. I think it was the second game of the doubleheader, Golden State. And somewhere during the day, it became clear something was going on, and. I never felt like we had the intelligence that it was getting to the point where you guys might not play. Um, but we knew something was going to happen. That ended up being the warm up jackets thing. I, I look back and I feel like that might've been a missed opportunity that you guys just shouldn't have played. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of forces at work. You have a lot of players who were like their own little individual brands and companies. And there's all these reasons not to do that. But uh, six years later, do you look at that and go, why the fuck didn't we play? Like, hey, wouldn't people have been behind us not playing that game? If we knew we were going to get our ass kicked by 30, we sure wouldn't have played. Right. Um, <laughs> it was just a new, like I said, we were traveling in. I've, I've been talking about this left to right, doing interviews for Quibi about this, but we were embarking on a new territory. Which social media wasn't new, but the fact that players using their platform and their voices hadn't really started yet. So I kind of yeah. feel like, you know, that, that situation kind of opened the door a little bit, but not playing was definitely something we had talked about. And Golden State was going to be down with whatever we did. But I just kind of feel like as players, there was too much unknown for us. Okay, if we don't play this game, is this a, we got to think we're playing against a young, hungry-ass Golden State team that, that took us to seven games and we finally beat them. So is this going to be an automatic loss? Okay, and if we sit out this long, do we sit out until Sterling's gone? You know, how long is it going to be until he's actually gone? So there was too many, too many unknowns, I think, for us not to play. I agree it was probably a missed opportunity. But when you're in the moment and as players, you dream of getting a chance to play for a championship. And we felt we were one of the best teams in the league that year. I think we won 57, 58 games. Yeah. Um, we felt like we were talented enough to win. So we didn't, you know, 
and, and, and being a Clipper and, and, and being in that organization for me twice, it was never about Sterling. And the team had always been shitty because to me, winning starts at the top. And he was never, you know, a, a winner when it came to sports. Um, so when we got there, it was always like we, you would never, we would never say no shit like let's win for Donald. And let's win for Sterling. You know, and now they might want to win for Bomber because he's dope and it's a whole other atmosphere. But it was never that. So whenever we got there, it was always, you know, kind of us against, not against them, but it was, it was for us. It was for us. It was for our team. It was for our family, for our fans. It was never for him. So we just didn't know enough of the backlash or what would have happened if we would have sat out that game to take a, take a chance on sitting out because we felt like we had a team that could win it, you know? So, you know, we fast forward, we're able to beat Golden State. We're beating, you know, we're beating Oklahoma City. We're, we're having a better series than them. And then the whole story, you know, kind of resurfaces that, you know, Sterling is refusing to leave now. So then that whole drama kind of gets dug back up. And I would never blame us losing on that because we lost those games. But to me... Yeah, you blew, you blew that home game. I went to that there game. Was, there was so much just added input and distraction put on of what you should have did and you know you should have sat out last year so there was so much shit of what it could have shit that happened that it was just like damn but you know to me like and like i said in the document it was the worst and the best thing ever to happen to the clippers because the league was trying to get him out the second they found out who he was once he kind of bought the team and started showing his hands so you know although he walked away with two billion and only bought the team for 12 so technically it was a win for him the league as a whole finally got him out of the league well, I, I was 10 years in on Clipper season tickets at that point. And Sterling was just like, was like owning a house and your next door neighbor is just the absolute worst on the earth and you just kind of get used to it. You right. know, you go to these games, he's sitting at midcourt, he's dressed in all black. He's just like the Grim Reaper. And he's just kind of there with a shitty look on his face. And it was like, all right, I'm going to try to enjoy the game anyway. But he was, you know, and everybody knew all the stories. It wasn't like... <laughs> When the right. 2014 thing happened, it wasn't like, oh my God, I can't believe it. It was like everybody knew yeah. they couldn't figure out how to get rid of them because right. it's like, once you buy an NBA team, you're in, that's it. Um, what, what would you have done, Steven Jackson? Well, actually I was, on, I got cut before it came out. I was, I was, uh, I think I was on that team, um, a couple months before that happened. I got cut in January. I got cut in January. I was on a 10 day and I got cut, but I ended up doing a song about it. You know, because that was my last team I played on. Once I got cut, my my NBA career was over. Um, I ended up doing doing a song with uh, the rapper Scarface called "America the Beautiful," basically saying, "Is this a court or this is or is this a cotton field?" You know what I mean? You know, with, with having this guy out here, and I and I I honestly feel like he's not the only one. But um, it it was devastating for me to see, and I told Matt this. You know, I I meet, I thought. They missed out on a moment too. I think they shouldn't have played. I think the Warriors and the Clippers shouldn't have even showed up. Neither team should have showed up, you know. And uh, but they 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 did what they could because you know a lot of stuff was going on. A lot of people didn't know the repercussions of not showing up. Uh, you know, what I'm saying a lot of people didn't know what was going on. It was, they just wanted to be. You know, I'm sure they just wanted to do something as a team. But me, I I I felt since I was just on that team and I got cut by that team, it was only right that I speak on it because I was already doing music. Well, I, I remember it just being a sad day, you know, because the game was so dispiriting. You guys were just like shells of yourself. You know, it was almost like you would have been better off not playing, but just in general, like, uh, it felt like a missed moment. I don't think I, you know, obviously 
there's not going to be backlash to that. But I think it's hard for you guys to know that in the moment because you're thinking like, well, shit, this could fuck up our playoff series. What if people get mad at us? And you're thinking all these variables. But now you look back at how the world works. I think everybody's on your side. Like, I don't know who's against you guys for being like, we're not playing for this guy. They have to fix this now. Um, But, you know, it's one of those things you you realize some stuff after the fact. You talked about egos on that team, Matt. This was something I was talking about on TV and everybody would get mad at me. Um, and I was like, look, I go to the games. I know a lot of people that work for the team. The Chris Blake thing is a real thing. There is a steering wheel issue with this. And this is the biggest issue that this team has. And everybody's like, fuck you. You're just trying to start trouble. The, yeah, it was oh, typical talking head. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm going to the games. Like these guys don't like playing with each other. I don't, I honestly, I don't, I don't know what to say. Could you feel that? Uh, how early did you, did you feel that as a teammate? Um, it was weird because it it was crazy because off the court, we were all so cool. Like our families kicked it. Our girls kicked it. Our kids, like me and Chris's kids still go to the same school. So it was always such a cool energy. But when it came to on the court, this is, and this is kind of my way I look at it. And I've never really spoke on it publicly. It was Blake's team. Blake kind of brought the juice back to the Clippers. And that's true. Um, and then Chris comes, and then it's Chris's team. So there's a little bit of natural animosity there. Whose team is it? I've done this. I've done that. My accomplishments, your accomplishments. But then when they start playing together and putting that ball on the court, they're amazing together. So there was still a little back and forth because whenever Chris would get hurt, Blake would be superhuman. When Blake wasn't playing, Chris is the best player in the world. You know what I mean? So it's just – but then together they were still great. And then what else I saw, which a lot of people might have not have seen, was Blake and DeAndre were best friends off the court when DJ was just a rebounder and kind of doing what he was doing. And then DJ starts to kind of develop into a defensive monster and a shot blocker and catching lobs just as beautiful as Blake's. So then there starts to be a little animosity between those two because DJ's just not the homie no more. DJ's first team all defense and DJ's playing on the Olympics team and dj's getting accolades now so it's just like so it's almost like i kind of felt like blake was almost competing against our other best players so to speak yeah Uh, but then there would be times where we would click in games and we were the best team in the nba there was no question with our shooting with jj and jamal my defense we had bledsoe we had darren collison we had lamar odom like we had so much talent to go with our three best players, but we could just never get out of each other's way. Never. Well, get and then you have the in 2015, Blake is out of control for the first two rounds. I mean, he's he looks like he's one of the best three players in the league, and then you you blow that weird Houston game and everything flips. What was your uh, what was your interpretation, Jack, when you walked into that the whole Chris Paul Blake thing? Uh, well, like I said, I was on it up for three weeks, but I think um, I really didn't see much of it, you know, because I was that short. I think um, what I did recognize when I did get there was J.J. Riddick was like the patch-up guy. You know, like J.J. saw all the nonsense, like he was the patch-up guy. Like J.J., I don't know a lot of people know about J.J. Riddick, but he's, he's a straight shooter as well, you know, and he, he's a professional. Um, one thing, one thing I noticed when I got there, I think everybody kind of like 
got the right and wrongs or was that right or did I do that right? From the little short time I was there from J.J. Riddick. Even I had some conversations with him the time I was there about basketball and watches and stuff like that. But I didn't get a chance to really see the Chris Paul and Blake stuff too much. The time I was there, everything looked like it was, it was peaches and cream. One thing that I forgot to mention was Chris is a throwback old school player. So sometimes he's going to yell and say things. But what he's saying is right. I just think his delivery would rub Blake and DJ the wrong way sometimes. Yeah. So when Jay said like the, the, the voice of reason was definitely DJ, I was able to kind of breathe a bridge of communication because we know that, you know, Chris is a throwback 80s, 90 type mentality leader. But then that new era of the younger players, when Blake and DJ were coming in, these guys were kind of, they never really had too much adversity. You know what I mean? Like AU was pampered and they got everything in the world and then college for a year or two. And they're, you know, they're this, this and that. So the reality of coming to the NBA and then, you know, being with amongst other talented players, when you're really good, you see it a lot. And this is not necessarily, uh, you know, Blake or DJ, but you see like young players, they don't react well to this. You know what I mean? Like you have to kind of pull them aside and, pamper them and say some others so that's what i would kind of do when chris might bark something out i'd just be like yo this is what he's trying to say but what he's yeah. saying is not wrong just his delivery wasn't received and i think you know when you hear rondo bring up like some like well everyone hated playing with chris because he's just that wasn't true but i just think the one flaw and i wouldn't even call it a flaw because i was cool with it but i was just i was old school was Chris was one of those guys that Kobe and Kobe and Mike win at all costs. One of the most fierce competitors I've ever played. So if he's going to cuss your ass out, it's probably because you deserve it. If he's yelling at you, it's probably because he sees something out there that you should have been doing. And that that's not to say Chris wasn't perfect. And, you know, we didn't cover for him on the defensive end sometimes, but this is not, but Chris was our leader. And I just think sometimes with his delivery and the misconception of him being a bad teammate is, is really a misconception was he was just one of those throwback type leaders that if it, you had to get cussed out he would cuss you out if he had to yell at you he would yell at you and it was that situation and sometimes I feel like that kind of rubs some of our younger players the wrong way you could feel it at the games Chris yeah. was like the dad coming in and just yelling at oh, <laughs> who left the plate on the counter like he was just like the way he carried himself in games and you could see some of the guys like all right this guy I'm glad you brought up JJ though he hosts a ringer podcast he's one of he's a pr true professional in the uh in the ringer offices as I well. Love I love <laughs> Someone I didn't like, you know, you know, there's kind of always a, an additive on, on big guy, this and that. So before I even knew Jay's, I'm like, fuck this guy, you know, he, this, this and that. And then I got a chance to play with them in Orlando. We became close and then became very close when we played on the Clippers. And, and it was weird, you know, because there was always such, and I'm sure I had the similar reputation of man, fuck Matt, he's this, this and that. And then when I become yeah. a teammate, like, you are cool, you're down to earth, you got our back. So it was interesting to, to, to finally get to play with J.J. after kind of having a notion of what I thought he was. Complete opposite, amazing guy, blue guy, ultimate professional on and off the court, and, and, and one of the better people I got a chance to play with. Well, it's funny you talk about the young guys and how they don't handle adversity the best sometimes. They don't like being yelled at, and they're they're a little bit pampered. And we sound like the old guys on the couch talking, oh, these young guys, they don't get it. Right. But I do think it's true to some degree because we've seen it in how the league has changed, right? When people have adversity, they just switch teams, and they don't, they don't want to be like, oh, man, we lost this year. We're going to come back. Let's band together. Now it's like 
ah, we lost this year. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to this place. Jack, do you like where the league is going with this, where it's just people switching teams like they're at a pickup venue? Well, you got you got guys like Dame Lillard that's trying to practice law too. But then you got to understand these teams. Once Shaq got traded, all bets off. Yeah, man. Once you start trading guys like that, that shows that these teams ain't loyal to nothing. So sometimes you got to start doing what's best for you. Once you get that money, you got an opportunity to go somewhere and play with some great players, win a couple of championships, strengthen your legacy, and make money. I mean, guys, guys can do that, but. You don't want to be in a situation where you on the team and your team is not doing well. Now they're sending you to to a dog pound. Now you want a sorry team for the rest of your career. So it makes sense. You know, I, I think the, the teams that traded guys like Shaq and did what they wanted with players, you know, and sent uh, players to, to to bad teams when they should have been on great teams their whole career on purpose. I love the fact that players can make can make their own decisions like that. Do you like it as a basketball fan with the continuity of the teams, though? Yeah, because it's different, you know. Like 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 we just talked about, guys wasn't raised like we had to, we had to earn everything, we had to prove everything. We played on courts with broken glass and all. They didn't have to do. It. They they played in gym. They didn't even play outside. So a lot of these kids now is different. So for them to be comfortable, you know, it's a lot of reason why I give a lot of props to LeBron James. We make sure everybody eating and for them to be comfortable and be able to choose where they want to play. You know, I wish I was in a situation where I could have decided to say I want to go play in Houston. I want to go play at home. And it actually happened. You know what I'm saying? These days, you can say you want to go play home if you're good enough, and it actually happened. You know, I think that's a good thing. Well, you know who started it? Matt Barnes. He was on like 12 teams. <laughs> <laughs> so, some some credit you with like just changing teams the moment you want a new situation. Opening the door. <laughs> uh, the podcast you guys have, you people are coming on, and more importantly, they're super comfortable. And when people are super comfortable, they end up saying stuff. And when they say stuff, sometimes it makes news in the 24-7 basketball <laughs> cycle. How do you get these guys to come on and be this comfortable with you? Is it like what if you had to rank the its previous relationships? Do you now have people that are volunteering to come on because they've heard some of the other pods? Like, why is this working so well? That's the vibe. That's the vibe we give off. I mean, you know, they on they only they only become that comfortable because once they either they know us ahead of time and they know how real we are, we already have a relationship where the vibe is laid back. But once they come to our set and be around us to see how we laid back, it brings them to a place, okay, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm having a conversation with my boys. It's not like coming to a show. And uh, But the good thing about that, a lot of the people that's been on our show, we have that relationship before we even call them to come on the show. You know what I mean? And, and that's why it looks like that. I think it really too. It starts with me and Jack's chemistry. Yeah, you know what I mean, we we're like brothers, so we'll talk shit about each other, laugh at each other, joke at each other, and never take ourselves too serious. You know, so when we thought about this show, when I when I you know when I once once he agreed to do something, I, I'm just like, okay, I don't want a typical put a microphone in someone's face type interview. I want it to be like you know we're in the movie room, we're in we're in we're in the dungeon, we're we're in the the fan cave. You know, having a drink, smoking a joint, or just and just having a conversation. You know, a back and forth dialogue. So, I think the fact that you know Jack and I's reputation speak for themselves. We've always been straight shooters, and then I also think that you know there's no angle with us. There's no ulterior motive with us. And and, and with some people in media, they want to get that one soundbite or that you know that 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 piece that's going to go viral, that's going to cause disruption in these guys' lives, uh, uh, one way or another. Now, with that said, some guys will, you know, some guys feel so comfortable that they will possibly say something that can have the same effect, 
but it's not because we're digging or prying right. or telling about your teammate or how, you know, it wasn't, it was never like this. It's, it's really just a genuine conversation. And when people feel comfortable, like you said, they're more susceptible to just freely speak. Like there wasn't really a microphone there to begin with, you know? So yeah. the fact that we have that environment where guys are talking like we're not, like we're just talking at because if you come, you know, if you ever come on the set, we're playing music, me and Jack are smoking, we're talking, uh, some guys are drinking. Getting haircuts. Yeah, getting haircuts, having friends come up and hang out for the day. So it's really just like someone's coming to the house and kicking it. You know what I mean? It's really that energy and that vibe. And, and to me, I, that's what I credit to our ability to get the best out of these people because it is just such an authentic type vibe. It's really, it's a hard place to get to. And I know I've had a podcast since 07. I, my only goal is for the person to get comfortable. Not, not because I want to burn them with, Oh man, I can't believe they said that. Right. I, Cause we don't, we also don't do that, which I think right. is one of the reasons people get comfortable, but you know, I don't use notes when I do a podcast. I want people to feel like we're having a conversation and kicking Ooh. it like that. It's a really hard thing to pull off. I, I've been really impressed that you guys have created this world. It's only been like what? 35 episodes, something like that. 30, 32. Yeah, um, 30 that people come in now and they know what they're getting into. Cause now you're at the point where people come on and if they don't know what the game is, it's their fault. You <laughs> right. know, if they're going to come on and be like, ah, oh, man, I don't feel good talking about that. Or I, I don't want to go there. And it, then it's like, well, why'd you, why are you on this podcast? Then? Well, 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 now we're at the point now where, you know, we have athletes reach out to us and call us cause they want to come on the show because it's stuff that they need to say. They're tired of hearing stuff said about them. That's not true. Uh, they're, 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 they're in a situation that came up in the paper and they want to tell the real because the, you know, they, they're not getting the real story. So that's, that's a good, that's a good a benefit from the show that I love. The fact that guys are using us as their outlet because we didn't have that same outlet to, 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 to uh, control our own narrative. Even taking a step further now, it's to the point too, with me after, you know, actors and musicians, like, you know, you need to have us on. It's just, you know, not just athletes. Let us come kind of tell our story. So mm -hmm. it really feels good because we feel like that was our goal to kind of humanize our guests, give them a comfortable platform. They feel like they can freely speak their mind. But that doesn't just pertain in sports. You know what I mean? Like media and we're a part of the media now. So we know, but media is powerful. It plays powerful roles in society and in, in, in an ability to paint a, a negative perception or a positive perception about people. So that's not only in sports, you know, so there's so many misconceptions and, and, and I kind of feel like media is at a point now, and this is not all media, but they're at a point now about being first and not necessarily being right. And when they're not right, not really worrying about the repercussions that may cause for the individual that they're saying these negative things about. So that's why we kind of give these people an open forum. I mean, when we had Draymond, Draymond was, now I've been waiting so fucking long to get some shit off my chest. We're like, oh shit, okay, well, let's go then. You know what I mean? So it's just kind of like a players can kind of exhale on our podcast and come really just freely speak because they know that it, it, it's, it's really, you know, you're in the circle of trust, so to speak. What was your favorite one so far, Jack? What was the one you're the most pleased with? Uh, I like the Sean King episode. Um, I, you're going to see the episodes that my favorites are the fa episodes that I tell Matt, don't expect me to talk too much because the guests I'm really in, intrigued on learning from them and, and hearing what they got to say. I think Sean King was one of those. But I think uh, the Kobe Bryant and, the, and I, I, I hold the Kobe Bryant episode dearly. Uh, you can see in our faces the admiration and the excitement we had going to see him and spend some time with him. And then everything happened afterwards. I hold that one close. But 
I enjoyed the Shannon Sharp episode. That's that's my guy. Um, <laughs> I, we we had been wanting to get him on the show, and yeah. uh, he talked and showed emotion that he's never showed. You know what I mean? Um, nobody's never asked, asked some of the questions that we asked him, especially about his grandmother and his relationship with his brother and how his brother's like his father. A lot of stuff that he said in the show he never spoke on before. So, And me working with him and me you know, being and talking to him a lot and becoming like a little brother to him, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know. You know, So to so see that emotion from him on that show, that meant a lot to me. I think, too, the best part, it, it, it's hard for me to pick one. Obviously, I would say Kobe if I had to just choose one. But the, the fact that, like Jack said, we know these guys, but we're still learning as we sit and talk to them. You know what right. I mean? Because to, 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 to be in a controlled environment where they're really willing to share their lives and their upbringing, their history. And I kind of look at it as, I mean, obviously, one of the best things about it to me is every episode is a handful of people's favorite. You know what I mean? And we've had a wide variety of people. So I kind of go on the journey where I kind of feel like we've all of them been great. But Stephen A. Smith kind of put us on the map. Because yeah. I got him by calling him out on the can on the, on the weed stuff that he's always kind of uneducatedly speaking about, and you know I was able to get him to come on the show and talk about that. Obviously, Kobe, and then Dwayne's Dwayne Wade's vulnerability really opening up to us, talking about true. the dynamic with his son who now is transitioning um, to be his daughter. The, 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 I think that's when we kind of crossed over to mainstream and the world and we've been able to build off that with shannon sharp with snoop with you know steph curry kd you name them we grabbed them but i think there was a few kind of monumental interviews that kind of put us on the map and then made us like okay these guys are legitimate interviewers podcasters they really know what they're doing and and it was refreshing because you know jack and i kind of we had no idea what this world was like all we knew how was to stay true to ourselves and stay true to each other. And for us to be able to kind of have the same mentality we played with now in the media space, I think that's why we get so much love and respect from not only basketball players, but athletes around the world, period. Soccer players in Europe are DMing me and MLB players and NFL players just thanking us for some of the stuff we speak on because, you know, they're either they can't speak on it or they just haven't really had the opportunity to speak on it. Well, I remember when you launched it, I was like, oh shit. I hope I hope not that many people see it and then we can get it at the ringer. <laughs> and then it you started having a couple good ones. And then when you had Kobe on, I was like, oh man, the ship the ship has left the port. This is done. <laughs> Kobe, Kobe's a wrap. Uh the, how how close to that was his death when you had him? It was within two months, right? So we had him the end of December. And we So it's a month away. So we saved them for the new year. We were going to drop them, but then we wanted to like come out of the new year with the bang. So we saved them for like the beginning of January. I mean, I mean, that's incredible. It was probably the last big interview that he did. I'm guessing. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's the last one that, 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 that we kind of knew of, um, you know, it was just a special situation, you know, for me to get the chance to know him through fighting almost, we almost fought, you know, I remember to, to, to become a teammate and, we kind of became brothers after that off the court, you know, so to get a chance to know Kobe, the, the, the person, you know, not the mom, but Kobe, the man, the father, uh, the husband, the businessman, it was a blessing. And then to even, you know, travel further to our post careers where 
I was seeing Kobe every other weekend because he was coaching Gigi and I was coaching yeah. my twins. So we ran into each other literally every two weeks. And I, when I tell you, he would always like, yo, when the twins are playing. So either if it's two hours before the game, an hour after Gigi's done playing, he would always take time to come see the twins and their team played and always send the newest shoe. The twins got sweatsuits, shoes, their whole team got shoes. But the crazy thing about it was he revamped one of his shoes and, and re-released it. And he sent it to the twins the Tuesday before the Sunday that he died. So it was just like, Oh my God. Super excited. The, oh my God. The, like so the boys, I think I actually Instagram, they're like, yo, we got the Kobe's and they, they did this, this and that to them and they're better now. So I got a whole bunch of 11 year olds running around in their Kobe. So the day the accident happened, we were actually up in my place in the Bay because we were playing a Bay Area tournament. We're based in LA. We were playing a Bay Area tournament. I was downstairs talking to some of the dads, hanging out. The boys were upstairs in the playroom playing. And we found out and I go upstairs and obviously the twins have known Kobe since they were like three years old. You know, he took them in, started giving them shoes like at four years old, they got their first pair of shoes. So it was Uncle Kobe to them. But then for just the rest of their team, like I see the twins crying and I see that everyone is just shook, you know, and then for me, it just didn't seem real. Like not this, not Kobe, like, you know, that's not him. He's not supposed to, to go out that way, you know? So to be able to, to get back to the point, to be able to, you know, for Jack and I and me in particular to get a chance to know the man, not the basketball player, because we all know how great he was as a player, but to get to know the person, that's what I hold near and dear to our heart and, 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 and our ability to to have one of his last interviews and, and knowing that we were planning on doing a part two because he was short on time and, he, you know, come back, we'll do it again. He gave me and Jack a bunch of shoes that day. Right. It's like, God, like, he, you know, we went and but before we even started the interview, we went and sat in his office and he was talking to us about the books he was writing for kids and, 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 and all the other stuff he was doing. And it was just so amazing to see, like I said, Jack and I would be able to keep that same mentality we played with and brought it into our podcast. He had that safe, same fierce competitive nature about being, you know, putting the first 20 years of basketball to bed and building this next 24 years of Kobe, the man, the entrepreneur, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and for it to be cut short, at 41, it just still doesn't seem real. Well, it's interesting. You know, he passes away and, and all the reporting and all the facts and the interviews that happened afterwards. And it was clear that there was a lot of stuff that was misunderstood about him as, as a person and just like the, the relationships he had. And I feel like I follow basketball at the highest level. And he, I never knew that he had a relationship with Michael Jordan. Like I just never, Stuff came out that when Michael Jordan gave that speech, I was like, what? The, wait, this was real? I, I had no idea. Are there other guys like this, Jack, that you feel like people don't, people know what they think they know, but they actually don't out of some of these NBA stars? Is there another guy like this that we just don't understand correctly? Yeah, Allen Iverson. He's the main one. He's the main one to me. I mean, there's no reason why when they have all these NBA events and all the stuff that he's not included or, they don't, that, or his face is not involved. You know, I think they kind of shot away from him because of the side of the culture that he brought to the game. You know, uh, he, he, his face and what he's brought to the game is just as big as Jerry West's picture on the basketball. Mm. For what he's done for guys from where we from, you know what I mean? He gave us the, the confidence to... He, he let us know that we can make it to the NBA, be successful, be an MVP, and not compromise who we are. Not compromise. Hold our own skin. 
Yeah, you know what I'm saying? You can you be, be comfortable in your own skin. And, and AI did that for a lot of guys. And to this day, guys walk around with tattoos. Guys walk around with, you know, with, with wearing their hair like they want to. You know, even 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 with the dress code and all that, they have a, it has a lot to do when Allen Iverson came to the league. And I think he is one of those guys that don't get the praise he deserves. Absolutely. He was also incredible in person just to watch. He was always, I wrote about this when I wrote about it in my book, when I get the season tickets and you would just mark down certain games, like, Oh, I got to keep those definitely keeping those. And it was just like, you just kept the Iverson tickets. Cause it was like, mm-hmm. this guy's, he was so much more amazing in person. Cause he was so small. He was, li- he was listed not- as six one. He was five. He was five, nine, five, 10 max. There's no way he was taller than that. Yeah. And was the toughest guy on the court every game. Um, I, think- I made a great point bill too is you know to me that was another reason why we wanted to do this show because i think there was such a misunderstanding who and jack who, uh, who jack and i were you know what i mean yeah jack, that's what you know in the brawl but you know he was labeled a thug or a bad guy because of the brawl but he was there to help his teammates you know so he missed out on money and all-star appearances and got a horrible reputation because he was trying to come to the defense of his brother me you go look everywhere i go no one ever fucked with me so every time i got in trouble i was protecting my teammates now yeah bad guy i'm a troublemaker i'm this this i'm that and then you know luckily post-career both and i jack and i have been able to kind of shed the negative stereotype that that was painted on us through social media now through our show through espn and fox giving us the opportunity to kind of speak and like oh shit these guys are intelligent they have something to say but i think there's a lot of you know ai is definitely one that comes to mind but there's a lot of guys that there is a there's a misconception of who people think they are because they get a small piece of him obviously social media helps develop our personalities now but back when there wasn't that you know if you're painted a bad guy you were a bad guy you know Mm -hmm. and that was something that i had to embrace because i knew i wasn't a bad guy but i'm like fuck it if they want me to be a bad guy i'm gonna be a bad guy i'm gonna embrace it and make a career out of it but there was times where it was hard because i'm just like you know i'm not this thug or person they want but that's just what the the media has labeled me so i think that was another driving force behind our show is just to kind of show the human side of us and our guests, you know, show the humanized side of Kobe Bryant. You know, everyone thought he was a, um, a, a robot that just did, and he was one of the coolest, most down to earth dudes you'll ever meet, but you wouldn't actually get a chance to know that, you know, if it wasn't for the opportunity, uh, you know, of, you know, different platforms being able to, you know, shed that light on situations like that. You know, I think the reason I like both of you guys over a lot of the other reasons was the authenticity, which you know, especially with somebody like Jack, it's like you Jack, have it too, though. We get it from you. You have it too. Well, well, you just kind of you are who you are, and that's it. And you're not gonna whatever situation you're in, you're just gonna be you. I feel like we're losing that a little bit. You know, at the NBA, where everybody's a brand now, and everybody can put out whatever they want to put out on social media to reflect whatever they're trying to reflect versus who they actually are. I think it's a lot harder to figure out who people actually are in 2020, right. you know, because yeah, it's, it's a lot of people playing. It's a lot of people living characters. Yeah. Like, like they, 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 they leave the house and they, they paint this, they wear this costume of being somebody they not. Then when they come home, they exhale because wow, it, 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 it's taking the toll on them trying to be somebody that they not. And, 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 and that's what a lot, you know, a lot, a lot of people, you know, uh, Tony, not Tony Dungy, uh, Herm was told me this. He's like, uh, I look at the game of basketball from when y'all played, Jack, and I can tell y'all love the game. Y'all played the game because y'all love the game. 
When y'all walked outside, it was nothing else to do. Get the gangbang, get in trouble, go play basketball. We went decided to go play basketball. You know, we, we didn't have too many choices. These days, these guys care about what the game can do for them. How many likes it can get them on Instagram. How many, you know, how, how, how many videos it can get them in. How many name jobs they can get by a rapper. That's the things they care about now. And uh, the game is different. So when people say that that getting to the NBA and 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 and, and the talent wasn't harder and better back then, it, it's, it's the talent is better now, but it's definitely harder to get into. I mean, it's, it's definitely harder to to see guys appreciate the game and love the game and the passion for the game has definitely left away because it's easier for guys to get in and guys are, are having having uh, having basically the ground laid for them with AAU and all that stuff now. So it's, it's a totally different situation. Yeah. We had Kemba this year. I say we like I'm on the Celtics. It's my favorite team. Uh, but we had Kemba this year. He, from the first moment was just incredible. Such a great guy. Um, great guy off the court, completely changed the mood of the team behind the scenes in five seconds. Um, all of a sudden the team's together. Like I talked to Steve Kerr was telling me at the team USA when they did that, it was just like, Kemba's unbelievable. Like, what an awesome teammate. But it's not one of those guys who's like, I'm going to prove on social media today how awesome of a teammate I am. He's just an awesome teammate. And it's mm -hmm. you could ask anybody. He does a lot of stuff that nobody knows about. He does a lot of stuff for charity people don't know about. But he's, to me, it's so funny how we went from Kyrie to that, where this guy who, Kyrie, that, I mean, we can do that another time. Uh, Kemba, <laughs> just the most authentic great guy who loves basketball and just wants to be a good teammate and is who he is. But I think with that said, you know, I don't know Kyrie as good as Jack does, but I think Kyrie is another one of those guys that's misunderstood. You know what I mean? And, and we've, we've seen his, 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 uh, you know, obviously his mistakes play out in front of us and, and understanding how tough it is to actually be a leader. You know what I mean? When he gets from an, an under bronze shadow, he thinks he can just come to Boston and, and I'm, cause I'm the best player. I'm a leader. It doesn't work that way. But yeah. I think, it's a bad rap too for kind of growing and his growing pains happening in front of our own eyes. I can't speak rationally about Kyrie. I can't, <laughs> I need, I need a couple more years. I need more distance. <laughs> him, him shaking off people in the buck series and trying to guard Giannis. I'm just like, what, what is happening? Why did this happen to us? Uh, Hey, we got to wrap it up. This was really great. It was good to Jack. It was good to see you again, Matt. I'm glad we finally did this. I love your podcast. I hope we get to work together at some point in our lives. Uh, keep it up. Great job. It's it's important. I'm really glad that, uh, you know, I think the Draymond interview is a good example of, like, I think some of these guys needed a place where they felt comfortable and could just That's shoot the shit off. about things they cared about. So you guys fill that void, and uh, I think it's really great. So congratulations. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks. We, de we definitely got to do some work together. Uh, I definitely see it in the future, man. You my guy. Like I said, I appreciate you opening that door for me. So anything you need from me going forward, I'm here to do that, my guy. Jack, you're my guy for life. Matt, thanks. great to see you. All right, thanks. All right, that's it for the podcast. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Thanks to Matt and Steven. Thanks to House and Concepcion. We'll be back Sunday night on the BS pod. And if you want more of me, you can listen to the rewatchables because we did Armageddon this week and we also did Back to the Future. So you can find those, listen to them over the weekend. See you on Sunday night. Enjoy the weekend. Stay safe. <laughs>